So I wonder what you were going to say then. Uh, Moonrakers. She's, okay. she's a moonraker. I'm a sand grounder. My wife's a sand groiner because there's a different accent on it. <laughs> and our son's a Lancastrian. So, yeah. All fun. So, how do you, how, like, uh, why, do, I don't have any of these names where I'm from. Really? Like the, 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 the name for the local people? No. Well, one of, one of the ones around where me and my wife, it, in terms of sort of uh, West Lanx, um, is Rimmer. That's a very much a, a name that comes from that area of the country. Sorry, can you say that again? Did I did I go? No, no, no. I just, <clears throat> so, uh, I think it's a funny word. <laughs> Rimmer? Rimmer? As in, as in, spell it for me. R-I-M-M-E-R. So the surname, you do know what that means, yeah, don't you? The, but the surname okay. Rimmer, it's um, <laughs> it's uh, from the fact that we used to have the largest body of water in England, Martin Mere. <laughs> I wondered was, what you were going to say then. <laughs> it was the Sorry, point, I'll <laughs> get my head out of the muck now. Of, well, it was, it was the largest um, body of water... <laughs> And so everyone who lived around the edge of Martin Mere were, were referred to as Rimmers. Um, and it's where um, Red Dwarf, hopefully you've seen Red Dwarf. Yes, yes, I love Red Dwarf. Arnold J. Yeah. Rimmer. Um, yes, he, he would be, yes. Because they're all from, supposed to be from the northwest. because um, Dave Lister's uh, from Liverpool. He's a scouser. And they reference the fact that they all live around there. So that's, that's oh, the reason such they picked that surname. Such a good program. And it's got there a you go. Family history because uh, my wife has Rimmers in her family. Uh, my brother, <laughs> sorry, right, my brother sorry. is going to marry a Rimmer, um, and I'm sure if you go back in the Heathcote line enough, you'll find plenty of Rimmers. <laughs> oh, yes. Hey up! I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history. Focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... Amazingly, this is the first one we've ever done where this story begins in the 20th century. So I'm, I'm quite up to date. And the three words, to give you a clue what we're talking about, cigarettes, holidays, and films. Cigarettes. So it's got to be some sort of Hollywood type of person oh potentially i mean probably international movies will will make an appearance are they oh so i don't know um i'm get what i'm getting in my head is glamour um Ooh. and i am also getting you know when people smoke and they have them long cigarette pipes i'm getting one of them in my head as well oh so an audrey hepburn um, sort of holder yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's let's see how close you were because Edward Walker was born in Singapore on the fourth of July, nineteen eighteen, which is a cool start as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you can finish it there. Done. Yeah. Well, well done, Edward. You've had a, an interesting birth, and we've we've only just met you. His father was a port agent for P and O, and as a result, he had managed to avoid the horrors of World War One. So his his dad had had a job that needed to be protected and so hadn't had to enlist. Handy. And I don't think, I mean, I could be corrected here, but I don't think that Singapore was particularly affected by World War One at all. 
No, I think it was mainly sort of mainland Europe. So, in terms of in terms of the family dynamic, there wasn't going to be that horrible dead-eyed stare of a dad who's seen too much and is trying to readjust, but just just can't because you know undiagnosed PTSD. So that's a good start. Uh, as the son of a lower middle class family, Edward was encouraged to make something of himself in the world of business. His dad probably thought, well, working as part of P&O, I managed to avoid any unpleasantness. I wouldn't want you to get dragged into the next one. Although they were a bit pushy in terms of when they felt he should make his mark on the business world. Because he got his first job at the age of 16. It's young. Well, I, I don't know. Did you have a paper round at 16 or something like that? Because I did. <clears throat> no, I mean... I wasn't really pushed to do anything, which is probably why I don't finish anything in my whole entire life. Um, <laughs> so, no, my brother did. My brother always had the commitment. But, no, I, I sort of swanned around for a long time um, talking about history to anyone who would listen. Which, you know, turns out you can make into a job. you just got to, yeah, keep at it. But still, um, I'm not talking about paper rounds for this guy because... You know, he was a go-getter, and at 16, instead, he decided that he would go and work for British American Tobacco, uh, selling cigarettes from their supermassive factory in Southampton. And when I say selling cigarettes, I don't mean, like, indip- individual packs. I mean, like, wholesale selling cigarettes. Nice. I used to smoke. I don't anymore, so... Well, and you, you probably, like me, think trying to sell cigarettes in the 30s, they pretty much sold themselves. Because although the cigarette companies had started to discover that their product caused lung cancer, they decided the general public didn't need to know because it it only worried them. Shock horror. We don't want to upset them on Julie. No. Well, Edward, to be fair to him, he became disillusioned with it pretty quickly uh, and he decided to join the army instead at the age of 21. So all that his dad had done to try and uh, get him to avoid that kind of life... Nah, he, was, he, he wanted something more adventurous than selling cigarettes. Fair. So he completed his basic training uh, and was all set to be posted to India, which is, again, quite a... You know, going from Singapore to India, he's living the... Via... Yeah. Via Southampton. Via Southampton, but, yeah, I mean, that's just a layover, really. While he decided he really didn't want to be, your, you know, suited and booted, stuffy 1930s businessman. So... He was going to be posted to India and he received orders that he should get himself onto a ship that was chartered to set sail on September the 3rd, 1939, which happened to be a rather auspicious date. I was going to say, that's... You don't want to be travelling around on... No. (laughs) Well, because the, uh, you know, the war were declared on that day, um, they decided that they weren't going to ship anyone off to India um, and... They started to re- uh, remobilize all the armed forces uh, in different ways. So his trip to India was cancelled, so that he couldn't, you know, get away in case he was needed Aww. on the front lines. Luckily for him, though, they did allow him to transfer from the army because he quite liked the idea of joining the RAF. If there was going to be a war, he thought he'd rather be in a plane above it than slogging along, sort of in the trenches. Uh, and he managed to become a pilot. Which, is it the coolest job you could have had in World War Two? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think any job in war is cool. But for this purpose, let's say yes. I mean, I, I'm obviously assuming you survive. 
But if you're if you survived World War Two and somebody asks you what you did in the war, I think if you could say I'm a I'm a spit I was a Spitfire pilot and I was you know mm. up there in the Battle of Britain, that's that's going to get you a pint at a pub if you. Yeah, absolutely. I come from a long line of paratroopers. So my dad was a paratrooper, my granddad was a paratrooper, my great-granddad was a paratrooper. So, yeah, planes, yeah. So I guess I would have been in that category as well. Oh, yeah. well, I, I don't know. Does it work that way if you if you were having to enlist? Would the family pressure be, well, you have to become a paratrooper? Is I guess so. Of- They'd, yeah, I guess it, there, there's pride in your regiment and... And your your sort of area of expertise. So yeah, I guess that's how the rest of them ended up sort of doing the same thing. They sort of followed in their father's footsteps. <laughs> well, Ed- Edward, he he thought he'd get into a Spitfire. I'm sure he had an idea that he'd be flying a Spitfire or a Lancaster bomber, something iconic. Uh, he was actually given the job of flying reconnaissance missions over occupied Europe. And he was given a de Havilland Mosquito to do that in. Which, if you haven't heard of, or you're not quite sure what it is, uh, it was built mainly of wood. Uh, And it was completely unarmed. He didn't have a gun. As far as I'm aware, he didn't even have a sidearm that he could kind of pull out, like they used to do in the very original sort of biplanes. He had a camera. And his job was to fly over active war zones in a completely unarmed plane with a tiny camera taking pictures. However, mm. I feel like that's a very important job because this is... So for researchers like myself and yourself, like looking back and seeing these old photos of sort of London in the Blitz and all this uh, occupied Europe and stuff, I feel like that's a very important job. So I'm I'm proud of Edward already. Well, I, I'm just amazed that he, he survived the war in that situation it seems like one of those that if he's flying reconnaissance he's probably going to be trying to do it covertly so he's not going to have any backup so you know i doubt he was being flown over with like a you know how the bombers went across and they had lots of um, spitfires and things sort of flying alongside them to try and take out anything that came across i doubt he was getting that kind of treatment so like safety in numbers yeah i think he was it was more like if you go very, very quietly in the dead of night, maybe they won't notice you. And off he went. I mean, it obviously works. Oh, yeah. He he was a very good pilot. And actually, I don't know if it comes up again, but for the rest of his life, he managed to keep up his pilot's license and he had a series of small little planes. He loved flying. That's really cool. I've actually flown a plane on my 21st birthday. I got it as a gift. Oh, fantastic. It was, um, it was terrifying. I hate heights. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you say gift, was it bought for you by a friend or by an enemy then? Well, it was by my mother, so make of that what you will. <laughs> well, you've got, you've got to, yeah, it's uh, aversion therapy, isn't it? If we put you in that situation, you will literally either get over your fear of heights or there will be therapy in your future. Maybe she was just hoping that I would fly away and just never come back. Maybe that was... <laughs> That's the, dark. ...the theory behind it. Well, I, I don't think you'd be able to. Were you in a little Cessna or something? I, I, I It was a plane. I don't know. <laughs> it was like a two-seater plane. Uh, I, t- to be fair, it was, it was fun. Um, but, yeah, 
Um, I've done it now. Apparently, it counts towards my pilot's license if I ever wanted to get one. So that's one hour down. Tick done. How many is it to get a pilot's license? I thought it was a couple of oh, hundred. Oh, I took that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a start, anyway. At least you're not starting from yeah. scratch. But Edward, he didn't just get a lifelong love of flying out of um, his time in World War Two, flying his little mosquito, because by the end of the war, he'd been promoted to squadron leader. So he had a bit of authority, and he'd met his first wife, Marjorie Bevan Jones, who... That is an amazing name. Would you believe she was Welsh? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She was was Welsh, and she was also a member of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Oh, yes. Love it. So it was Raff and Waff together, a match made in heaven. So after the end of the war, um, Edward left the RAF. And he started looking for something new to occupy his time. He didn't want to go back to selling cigarettes or any boring sort of suit job. Um, So he cooked up a business with another former pilot who he'd flown alongside called Simon Templer. And the business was called En Famille. And it was an international home exchange travel agency. So it was a little bit, although not quite, like Airbnb. Way ahead of its time. So the the idea was he'd get a French family who, for some reason, were looking to spend some time in England. Southampton. Yeah, as if they hadn't suffered enough during the war. They were then going to come over to England for a holiday. <laughs> and then he'd pair them with a, a nice family from wherever in, in England. And they'd swap houses for a couple of weeks. So it's a, a way of getting a holiday on the cheap. So almost like a foreign exchange, but... But for adults, yeah. 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 That's Well, Edward described it. He said it was a good bit of fun that encouraged international friendship. So he was doing his bit to, to maintain the peace post-war. I couldn't tell if um, there were German placements offered, to be fair. It seemed mainly to be um, France. Uh, so my granddad, who was a child um, during the war in Bedfordshire, so there was um, a prisoner of war camp just down the road um and uh so there were a lot of young german and italian um guys that were sort of captured and prisoners of war um who became lifelong friends with sort of a lot of the community um in the area so although sort of politically on the on the surface of it there was a lot of um conflict between uh, germany and britain and italy and britain Actually, it's it's normally the politicians that have the have the bad things to say, and actually the normal people just kind of get on, yeah, and realise that there's not actually that much difference between. Well, the propaganda um, only works people. until you meet them, and then you're like, oh wait a minute, you're very much just a human being. Turns out Absolutely. you don't eat babies and yeah, all of the other stuff. And I guess yeah. you know, World War Two, we were starting to turn that corner in that. The, the news coverage was so ubiquitous and it was we were starting to get videos and we were starting to get um, sort of live reports in terms of radio reports that the governments that were sort of running the wars didn't have the handles of propaganda quite so tightly gripped anymore. So they couldn't spin the narrative as much as maybe they could during the other wars previous to that. Like. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because... Um, we, uh, you have that sort of one-dimensional view of this is black and this is white, and actually it's not like that at all. And people have always been um, objectors to war, but now their voices can be seen and heard more 
because of the media outlet, and it was happening then as well. Oh, I'd have, I'd have definitely been a conscientious objector. Oh, absolutely, me too. I I get asked this question like if there was for whatever reason another war, um, and they uh, you were kind of if you were a certain age, you were you were forced to en- enlist. Um, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm not fighting your dirty war. Like no way. Um, I, I sort of made peace with it. I, I think I'd go into the sort of medical corps and just be like, I will, I will help people. You know, I don't mind going out and trying to help people. If you give me one of those lovely, don't shoot me flak jackets with a big cross on it, um, <laughs> that's fine. I'll do that. But in terms of holding a gun, I just, no, it's never interested me. No, it's not for me. I'm worried I'd like it. Aside from anything else, mm, power, power in my hand. Well, this is a this is a thing, isn't it? You've um, yeah, maybe it's it's best to step away from those situations. So where was I with Edward? Yes, so he'd set up this lovely um, foreign exchange trip, and it was make it was mending fences, it was building bridges, loads of metaphors were coming out. The one thing it didn't do, however, it didn't make a lot of money. Uh, and Edward spent the late forties and the early fifties living in a trailer behind a pub. Nothing wrong with that but that's that's where he was. So he'd gone from a childhood in Singapore to potentially going to India to a trailer behind a pub in the south. Uh, I think he was somewhere in Kent, actually, at this point, behind a pub. I mean, Kent is a lovely part of the country. Mm-hmm. No arguments here. But is it as lovely when you're living on your last pennies behind a pub? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, is it as lovely as Southampton? <laughs> yes, definitely. If not much, much more so. I very much enjoy Southampton. I think it's a very nice place. Mm. Though he wasn't making a lot of money out of his new company, it did provide him with the opportunity to spend regular trips across in Spain, south of France, lots of really nice spots. And it was in southern France that Edward happened to chance upon a nudist beach. Easily done in the south of France. They're they're dotted around everywhere. Edward was immediately quite taken with the concept. And he decided that naturism was something he wanted to be a part of. Okay, I'm up for that. Yeah, well, his soon-to-be ex-wife did not agree with him. But he kind of shrugged his shoulders and joined the Spielplatz Nudist Resort in Herefordshire in 1951 against her wishes like i say soon to be ex-wife right yeah that makes sense so he's he's found his passions he's got planes and he's got nudism yeah but that's not all because the early 50s also provided a second fateful moment in edward walker's life this time while he was enjoying a pint in the queen's head pub in the new forest in 1953 i don't know why he was in the new forest and when it gets around doesn't it in the new forest it's like right in the, the sort of nub of the new forest. He's he's surrounded by a lot of forest at this pub. But he was just drinking his pint and he noticed a weird little egg timer thing filled with water behind the bar that had been made by a bloke called Donald Dunnett. There was a light at the bottom of the device that warmed globs of oil and they'd rise to the top. Apparently, the amount of time it took from when you turn the light on to the oil rising to the top of his little egg timer was exactly the same time as you needed to boil an egg. And this is hard-boiled, I checked. Not soft. Okay. 
you need a slightly smaller one. Uh, the conversation he was having must have been boring because he became fixated on the egg timer to the point where he asked the barmaid if he could meet with the person who'd made it, which I, I don't know if you've ever been so taken with something while you've been out for a pint with your mates that you've stopped the barmaid and demanded to meet the maker of that thing. It's, I mean, at uni, it, it, I probably did. It was a messy couple of years, so I wouldn't put anything past me. Mm. Well, unfortunately, even though it's, it's never going to happen, you think Donald Dunnett would be very, very happy. But he died, so he didn't get to bask in the glory of someone wanting to meet him because of this thing he'd invented. Uh, unperturbed, though, Edward, he brought Dunnett's egg timer from the pub. I think he paid a couple of quid for it. They were like, OK, there are much more efficient ways to time an egg. Have it, whatever. Um, and he tracked down Dunnett's widow, specifically so he could buy the patent offer, which he did for another mm, few clever. pounds. So he spent about five pounds at this point, and he's got a weird little egg timer and the patent for it. And he would spend the next 10 years tinkering with it in his homemade workshop out the side of his little trailer, uh, trialing different mixtures of liquids and strengths of light, noting the impact each change had on the flow of the oil through the water. Not sure if he was taking drugs during this, but it kept him entertained once the pub had shut to just mess about with oils and and lights. So he has I mean, th- I suppose you've got to do something with your time, haven't you? But he's got three passions now. He's got his oily liquids, he's got his planes, and he's got his naturism. And the oil experiments, they had they to They could take- all merge quite nicely. <laughs> well, it, he's, he's a person who would... Um, rise and fall in these passions so the amount of intensity would go up and down they were always there but obviously you can imagine when he's living in a trailer behind a pub in Kent he's not getting that many opportunities to take planes up he doesn't quite have the funds for a plane at this point so that's taken a bit of a back seat but his oil experiments had to take a back seat too because in 1955 he got married again and his second wife was quite famous she was a noted ambassador and model for naturism and her name was Elizabeth Elcote Gilbert. I will warn you now, if you search for Elizabeth Elcote Gilbert on Google, image search, most of the pictures of her, she will be fully naked. I'm going to Google them now. Okay. I'll just, I'll just pause so that you can bask what in What is the, her name? Elizabeth. Elizabeth, yeah. Elcote, so that's E-L-C-O-T-E. Almost like your name. A little bit like my name, but with no relation. She's much prettier than me. And Gilbert, as in the guy who's in those weird calendars. Oh, God, yeah, that's, that's very strange. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert. Right, let's do it. Images. Oh, why is, it, why is nothing coming up? You're getting, no, you're getting no images of this woman. I managed to find lots during my research. <laughs> Naturist. Oh, literally no. Oh, safe search is on, that's why. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll need to be right. flicked to off. No, nothing. Wow, because I managed to find lots of images because she was putting herself front and centre to try and promote this um, movement. Uh, she would agree to be photographed for magazines. She would be interviewed discussing why she preferred this natural life. Um, and she, you know, you can imagine... 
Edward Craven. He was uh, Edward Craven Walker. Sorry, he was totally smitten with her. Uh, they got married, and he wanted to to help in her cause from that moment on. Now that it was his wife that he was trying to help, uh, he wasn't willing to get in front of the camera uh, to be photographed, but he was willing to get behind a camera, and by that I mean a film camera. Uh, and he started filming with the last of his money some tasteful nudist films. Um, unfortunately for him, the first hurdle he had to get over was there were strict censorship laws, which made it illegal not to show naked bodies, because the wording was quite specific. It was illegal to show pubic hair in movies for public release. That so, is very specific. Well, he came up with a rather cunning way of circumventing <gasps> that particular thing by ensuring that all of his models were clean-shaven. And that was, that was enough to get past the censors. So he released his first movie, Eve on Skis, in 1958. It, it didn't make a lot of money, but he decided he'd have a second crack at it, and he made a film called Travelling Light, which featured an underwater nude ballet, and it opened in the West End in 1960. And the this it, gent's definitely on drugs. Well, whether he's on drugs or not, he's hit the zeitgeist because 1960, he's, he's suddenly hit his decade. This is the decade for Edward Walker because that film started to make quite a bit of money and was even distributed internationally. Didn't convert too many people to joining, you know, naturist um, groups, but it made Edward Walker a hell of a lot of money. So the... You can imagine now that the trailer behind the pub, that's gone. He's living in houses from this point on, like brick-and-mortar houses. Yes. Living the dream off that nude underwater ballet money. Sex sells. It really does. And we're going to find out that it sells even more in a little bit because at the same time that he suddenly had this windfall of money, he announced that he'd finally perfected his water-to-oil ratio and he was ready to mass-produce his own variation on Mr. Dunnett's egg timer. Though he wasn't going to use it to time eggs, he wanted it to be an interior design piece, an icon of interior design. Uh, and he gave it a name. He referred to it as his astro lamp, buying into the new <gasps> nuclear age, the, the age of rockets. So he designed the astro lamp. Although nowadays, colloquially, it's better known as the lava lamp. I have a lava lamp. It's literally behind me as we speak. Well... On. There you go. You've got Edward Craven Walker to thank for that. Thank you, sir. Even better than that, in this age of Brexit, he set up a factory in Britain. Specifically, in Poole in Dorset. Uh, with his third wife. Because uh, the, the fling with the nudist um, hadn't lasted... Probably once he started spending a lot of time filming other naked women. but his, his I mean, that would, that would do it. Yeah. His third wife's the charm. I'm pretty sure that's the, the saying. Uh, and this was Christine. Uh, they set up the company under the name of Crestworth. And playing off the new de- newly developing psychedelic age, Edward coined the slogan. This is, this is the slogan that they sold the original Astro Lamps with. With my lamp, you don't need drugs. <laughs> or... It should have been my lamp. This would enhance your drug experience. <laughs> yeah. You want to be drug adjacent when you turn this thing on, at least. Mm-hmm. But weirdly, yeah. with a strap line like that, Selfridges agreed to carry it. 
How edgy. Yeah, he was immediately very high-end that, you know, he was being sold in Selfridges. Well, uh, Selfridges is just off of Carnaby Street, and we know Carnaby Street is quite famous for being a bit psychedelic, a bit wacky in the 60s. So that's probably where they thought there was a market of people were kind of going down that road and buying all these crazy things, then actually, let's get it in Selfridges. Well, it was, I mean, it started off in Selfridges, but it was soon everywhere. It was described by Murray Moss, who was an entrepreneur and design critic in New York, no less, as a must-have for dormitory students. It was devoid of function, but rich in emotional fulfilment. It could momentarily free your mind like a warm bath. I I agree. I agree. That's one of the reasons why I got it. It's hypnotic. Mm. Although it... Considering lamps in the title, I've always found the very poor at actually illuminating a space. <laughs> you should complain. Yeah, you can't read by an astro lamp. Or at least I've, I've no. never been able to. No, you're, you're correct. <laughs> have you tried? <laughs> no. Is that I'm what you d- have I'm to trying second? now. <laughs> I'm trying now as we speak. But no. re- regardless of its lack of actual function... It sold by the bucket load. And by the early 70s, at the peak of the manufacturing of the Astro Lamp, they were distributing from a small factory in Poole, because they still only had the one factory, everything was handmade there, they were distributing 7 million lamps a year. That's a lot of lava. It's a heck of a lot of lava, isn't it? And the range expanded. I mean, some of them, there is there is a gorgeous website that looks like it was set up when the internet was new and it makes no sense you can't navigate the thing and there's loads of things that you you won't have seen on a website for nearly 20 years but some of the images of the designs i mean they ended up with ones that were a good 10 foot tall and if you wanted to impress your guests you would have to turn it on a good eight hours before you wanted the actual you know the oil and wax thing to be moving up and down because it took that long to heat the water to the appropriate temperature. It's only a light bulb, isn't it, at the bottom? Oh, these, the, uh, these are big light bulbs. These are the kinds of things, you, you know, normally are affixed to lighthouses. Yeah. I mean, going off the back of, you were saying, early, early days of websites. So I specifically remember sitting there with my brother and his friend, like, checking out adverts to see if they had a www dot address on them. Like, when it was new. <laughs> so we were like, oh, they've got a website. They haven't. They've got one, though. Like, And we went through like the adverts between our favourite kids' shows and would deliberately look to see if people had Had the websites. website. That, that was the higher class. I mean, it's a, it's yeah. a, we- it's a well-known thing amongst nerd culture, but um, the Space Jam, the original Space Jam website, was left up and is still there in its original form from like the late 90s and if you search for it you can still go on to this amazing time capsule of a website that they just stopped updating after the movie came out and it's just like well no one's going to use this and it's just sat there now that's so cool it's it's always it's always worth a little google not now obviously definitely yeah no so like i say the range expanded because he wasn't just going to do the one astro lamp it included different color combinations different shapes and different size lamps but they also took advantage of fiber optics to develop color changing ufo lamps oh yes which i had one of those as a kid as well yeah 
uh, I had one where it was the the fiber optic little sort of stalk at the top would rotate as well. You were living in a classy household. Very, very classy household. Although that was the only light we had, so, you know, winter was bleak. <laughs> no reading. No, no, no. Well, you learned to le- read by the very thin light of a fibre optic, so you had to almost move it around the letter as you were reading <laughs> to discern what it was. So Edward, you can imagine he made all of the money at this point. He was selling these things for quite a quite a premium price, um, and he was pocketing quite a lot, considering he owned the patent, he owned the factory that built them. You know, he was pretty much lord of the lava lamp. Uh, and he used the money to go back to the, the naturalist thing, and he opened his own naturalist centre, the Bournemouth District Outdoor Club. Where do I sign up? I've got bad news for you at the end of this episode. We'll, we'll get to I it. I don't want bad news. Don't bring it to me. You, you uh, Suffice to say at this point, you can no longer join. Wow. I'm going to start my own. <laughs> is is it your own or is it you standing in your back garden, naked and shouting at people, join in! It's weird if it's only me. I'm not sure my... Yeah, I'm not sure my neighbours would be too happy with that. Uh, it's, it's at what point does it migrate from the crazy local to a nudist centre and apparently it's you need lava lamp money and then it becomes all above board but he had even more money so he started to buy himself British made sports cars aeroplanes helicopters and because you need something for just you know pootling around town a fire engine (laughs) if Stephen Fry can have a taxi Edward Walker can have a fire engine this is true. This is true. Does Stephen Fry actually have a taxi? Or was that for the purposes no, of no, him he, travelling around America? He owned a taxi. A few people did. Um, Chris Tarrant owned a taxi. It seemed to be in vogue if you were a celebrity at one point to own a London cab. But because mm. of the turning circle, if nothing else. Yeah, true. True debt. And plus the bloody bomb proof. Plenty of those things have done fifty thousand, yeah, five hundred thousand miles, and are still going. I'm pretty sure you could drive one to the moon if there was a road built. They're definitely of an age, aren't they? Like the design of them, like you would, n- no one would ever design something like that now. Like the shape of them, etc., is very off. That it's sort of frozen in time. Even the new ones are in the old shape. Oh, the styling, yeah. But I like, I like yeah. the styling when people were trying to be fancy with cars. I don't like the idea of aerodynamics and function. I want stupid spoilers i want fins i want gullwing doors i want the lot my favorite is the suicide can you remember door. yes can you remember the um batman uh car in the 1960s that i have met the batman one. car we have a car museum so have i so yeah yeah so um the temptation to jump it in was, it was huge yeah I mean, now I'm thinking, is there more than one of them? Because when I saw it, it was in New York, unless it travels There, w- there will around. be a couple. Plus, y- yeah. you can build them to the specifications as well. I mean, yeah, I love that. Love that. I don't know, the, the Keswick Car Museum, it also had a copy of the 1990s Tim Burton Batmobile. Oh, them films are so underrated as a Batman trilogy, or whatever they were. There was four of them, wasn't there? Um, oh, the Joel Schumacher ones. Rest in peace, Joel Schumacher. Yeah. I, the, the oh, well, the, the Tim Burton one was the first one, wasn't it? And yeah. then it went into 
um, the one with Danny DeVito and all that. Uh, so good. I mean, it's a guilty pleasure, but my, we will sit down and we will watch the one with Jim Carrey as the Riddler and Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face. And so long as you don't try and take it seriously, it's fun. It's very yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. And even the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Uma Thurman in, people are like, this isn't Batman. It's like, I'm sorry, Adam West? Yeah. This is a film... To me, that's more Batman than the new ones. Like, I, yeah, they're too serious for me. Like, lighten up. The 90s, I don't know if I'm looking back on a uh, uh, sort of nostalgic era, but we love the 90s. It was fun. It was camp. It was... Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> All of it. No, you've got gritty reboot after gritty reboot. Now that's that's just the way it has to be. I'm sorry, people yeah, no like more everything to be brown original and scripts done. As we're talking about eras, as you know, the era of psychedelics it didn't last forever. We're no. not all still children of the light, hippie children now. And by the mid to late '80s, the sale of lava lamps it had gone down rather significantly. It was now considered a bit passe, a bit kitsch, you know, a bit something y- your mum might have in a desperate attempt to remain relevant. Um, <laughs> and Edward, to be fair to him, not bitter at all. He and his wife, fourth wife now, um, in the interim, he'd got divorced and married again. What a stud. Yeah, they just shrugged the shoulders, they downsized their operations and they just produce smaller numbers quite happily you know when i say that the boom of lava lamps had had gone it just meant he wasn't making ridiculous money he was still making more than enough to keep a small factory running and to keep himself in a modest income and he was happy with that so he lived doing his small cottage industry throughout the avarice of the 80s perfectly content down in dorset uh then in 1989, they were approached by a woman called Cressida Granger, who'd been sourcing original Astro lamps and wanted to know if she could begin ma- manufacturing her own up-to-date versions with Edward's support. So she'd run a vintage shop, and she'd bought up as many Astro lamps as she could, finding that she couldn't get enough to supply the demand that she had. So she thought, well, I'll just talk to the guy who invented them, and we'll see what he says. And he was 71 at this point. He'd lived his life. He was happy. So he threw his full support behind Cressida. He was more than happy to help because she was showing gumption. She was a go-getter. She wanted to be a self-starter. And he said, do you know what? Here are the designs. If you can revive this, you go for it. And this decision meant that the newly named Mathmos Company was ready to take advantage of the advent of rave culture and the resurrection of demand for the trippy lights that ravers remember from their childhoods. So she just so happened to buy into this idea exactly at the point when there was going to be a resurrection. Uh, Yes. Sales increased year on year after Cressida got on board, uh, and she ended up winning the Queen's Award for Export in 1997 and again in 2000. I don't know if that's a particularly prestigious award or hard to get, but she won it twice. So that's got to count for something, right? Yeah, 100%. Edward and his wife, they slowly sold their shares in the company to her through the 90s. <clears throat> so it was almost like a home equity release scheme. They were just selling <laughs> chunks of the business in order to continue to fund their retirement, which meant that they lived happily 
through a kind of semi-retirement championing a new business leader until Edward Walker sadly died of cancer in 2000 at the age of 82. But hopefully happy in the knowledge that his invention was in safe hands. He managed to see her win two Queen's Awards, so he knew, you know, he made the right choice in anointing her the new head of the lava lamp industry. When asked in a 1997 interview why people liked his lamp, he answered, It's like the cycle of life. It grows, breaks up, falls down, and then starts all over again. And besides, the shapes are sexy. <laughs> I mean, that was really deep until the end. That's, that's him. He's deep until the end. Um, Edward Walker would probably be less happy, though, to hear that his beloved naturalist camp in Bournemouth faced a string of financial difficulties from the turn of the millennium and finally closed its doors for the last time in May 2018. So you were... Where are we now? You were three years out from being able to visit. But unfortunately... Although I will say to anyone listening, if they're inspired, other naturalist clubs are available. And are still running. I mean, I'm not sure if I would be comfortable enough to do that. Mm. However, we were all born naked, so... Why not, eh? I've got a question. I don't know if you'll be able to answer this. Um, was was Edward buried in the nude? No. I can say that he was not buried in the nude. Because I'm pretty sure that would have made all of the obituaries that I read of him. Because a lot of this information came from obituaries. And I think that would be... You know, if I was a journalist, that would be something that I'd just put in at the end as like a... <laughs> Yeah, and also, you know, yeah. buried without ceremony and without clothes. He was he was just left out in a field. It's, he would have wanted it that way. <laughs> Behind a pub. Well, it's funny you should mention a pub, because if you want to visit the pub, the pub where the embryonic lava lamp was first seen by Edward Walker, it's still there, and you can find it at <clears throat> The Cross, Burley, Ringwood, Hampshire, BH24, 4AB. And while you're there, you can have a pint in honour of a true British eccentric. When when we named our thing consistently eccentric, this is the exact kind of person I was thinking of. The gentleman sort of inventor slash entrepreneur who just bumbles his way through life. Yes, he's had four wives because he loses them along the way and he's not quite sure where. So he just gets another one. <laughs> he's... He's just a glorious person. So what I love about this tale mm. is that he has gone from... So, so let's look at it as, I, I guess, a timeline. We, 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 we think of the war and the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s up to now as very separate periods of time. Um, but you've got people that are living... And dying through the whole of the that that section of the twenty um twentieth century, yeah, which born, I love. So literally at the end of the First World War, so his influence from his parents would have been informed by the fact that they were having a child, having seen as far as they were concerned, the world nearly end. And then he's gone all the way from that to literally the millennium, you know <laughs> from almost mutually assured destruction in Europe to Tony Blair and New Labour. He he saw all of that. That's insane. Like, I mean, obviously, none of us know how long that we're, 
we're, we're going to live, but the period of time that we're born in tends to be very different to the period of time that we die in. It's, and you've got all these historical events, like, in between. Love it. I mean, it's it's definitely speeding up. We're lucky to be where we are now because, you know, you go back, and I know it's going back quite a way, but into the Middle Ages, there were hundreds and hundreds of years where the life of your great-great-great-grandfather and your life would be almost identical, whereas now the life of your father and your life there are so many differences and i already know my kids are computer natives which i'm not so my my daughter has had a tablet since the age of five and we're the same age so i know that during your teen years you had the joy of dial-up and msm yeah, messenger, embryonic sort of msm messenger and stuff i miss msm msn messenger i remember like going home like after like sixth form or something and like really fancying someone and then sending them a message on there like hoping they'd reply but then you'd get ditched on there <laughs> oh god but yeah that's that i think that was a universal thing sending a message and just having nothing back and just sitting staring at the message just willing something to pop up and it never did yeah yeah oh maybe i yeah. don't like different times <laughs> Although, am I right in thinking that with MSN Messenger, you didn't know if they were reading it? So it, you just put it out there and you got no indication as to how it was being received, whether it had even been viewed, whether they were typing back, especially the early times. It was, you know, the idea of being left on read didn't exist because you, you didn't know. They might have died. You yeah, didn't I'd... get the free dots of them typing back. No. That's, you definitely didn't get that. That, that is a heart-stopping um, moment that our parents didn't have to deal with when you'd poured your soul out to someone and you could see the three dots yeah and then you just get okay (laughs) okay that's a knife in the ribs right there that is that's a modern way of stabbing someone (laughs) in the heart 